Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, the title of today's sermon, Get Out If You Can. The meaning of that title will become apparent a little bit later, but before we read the text of Revelation 14, 1 through 5, I want to just mention that if you're noticing, I am not preaching a sermon, any sermons at this point in chapter 13. We've gone from chapter 12 to chapter 14, and the reason for that is I brought several messages from Revelation 13 early last year, having nothing to do. We weren't studying Revelation at the time, but I felt that things were going on in our society at that time, and they continue to go on today, that a study of Revelation 13 would be relevant. So what I've done is I've gone back and I've taken that the audio of that sermon on Revelation 13, and I've retitled it and I've uploaded it to our sermon audio page. Some of you may have already noticed that. And so uh, abroad, the first of two sermons, I've only put the, f- the first of the two, I-, I don't know if I'll put the second up there or not, is already on sermon audio. And it's called The Beast, Wrong Number. So I encourage you, if you want to get the background of what we're studying today, if you're not familiar already, although most of us in this room are, you can listen to that. But please now give your attention to Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5, reading from the English Standard Version. John writes, and let's let's be reminded that this man has been given a panoramic vision of prophetic events that lie in his immediate future and those of the seven churches in Asia to whom this letter is addressed, this book. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him... 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth or the land. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the firstfruits of God, or for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. There ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. I don't suppose that any of us in this room today have ever been around when a volcano erupted. Now, you might have been if you lived near Mount St. Helens back in the 80s. Mount St. Helens, Washington, was a disaster waiting to happen. It had a great chamber of molten magma bubbling just below the surface of the mountain. And in 1980, it exploded. Many of us in this room remember that event and how there were some people who'd been warned to, to get away, but they stayed and I don't know if all of these were related to that, but 60 people at least were killed with the eruption or the consequences of the eruption of that volcano. Now, back in 2019, Michelle and I had the privilege of attending our Bible Presbyterian Church General Synod meeting, which was held providentially that year in Tacoma, Washington. And during one of the off days of the Synod meetings, we went with several other families and delegates who were attending up to a mountain that was right across from Mount Rainier, Washington. It's quite a, quite a sight. And you could see Mount Rainier from the top of this mountain that we went to. And I I bring this up because Mount Rainier is another volcano in that state that has a similar profile as Mount St. Helens. 
And scientists have learned that it too has a huge chamber of molten magma below the surface of the top. Now, in the shadow of Mount Rainier is a little town called Orting, Washington. And I'm conjecturing here, admittedly, but I I don't think it's off base. The question for those folks that they must ask themselves every day is not if Mount Rainier will erupt, but when. They know there's reason to expect that the volcano will blow up, but they don't know when. So the other question that they have to be asking themselves is, Are they ready? Are they ready for such an event to take place? My friends, the same thing is true of God's wrath and judgment. The Lord tells us in his word that he is patient, that he is merciful, but that he is also just and righteous. When a society, I mean, we could extend this all the way down to an individual or all the way up to a nation and its culture, When a society has gone too far down the road of evil, that inevitably leads to an eruption of wickedness and death in that culture and that society. Proverbs 8.36, all they who hate God's wisdom are in love with death. And that eruption of evil in that society in turn leads to an eruption of God's wrathful justice. Now, as we have gone along in the study in Revelation, we have had the awful privilege of reading about the pre-recorded, pre-scriptive events of the wrath of God coming against the old covenant nation of Israel. We have been learning how that God's justice would sooner or later come upon those who have violated his covenant law. Now, in the case of the Jews, that wrathful justice came as a result of their idolatry, their rejection of the Son of God as their Messiah. I mean, that's one thing to to do that, but then attacking and persecuting his church and then delivering him up for murder to the Romans. The same divine wrath would also come upon the Romans and their empire for their wickedness and their attacks upon the Christ and his church. Sadly, And I hope this won't come as any shock to any of us here or those listening. Sadly, our own nation has moved further and further down the road of covenant breaking. So that we too are ripe for a withering dose of God's divine wrath. And I would even suggest we are experiencing some of that right now. I don't know how you would describe it otherwise. What would a society look like? How would it look any different if it was under God's wrath and curse than what ours looks like right now? If you recall, we have already encountered this group of 144,000 believers. Back in chapter 7, we learned that that number was symbolic. It is used as a representative number for all the believers in Israel in those days who followed Jesus. 144,000 equals 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But in this verse, in chapter 14, it takes us much further back than Revelation 7. It takes us all the way back, as so much of the book of Revelation does, to the Older Testament. And, for example, Psalm number 2, where we read there of Christ the King standing on the holy mountain. But here, here, the King is not alone in John's vision. For gathered all about him are his loyal, faithful subjects. 
Now, back in chapter 13, we read there of the beast rising up out of the sea. But now the king here is enthroned and ruling over all things from the holy mountain of the Lord. The Lamb of God standing on the mountain is thus a symbol of his triumph over all his enemies and his faithful people share in that victory with him. The faithful covenant keepers have the mark of God on their foreheads. And, and here's a good place to just pause a moment and say this is an example of this statement and is, is an example of how people who've completely understood the nature of this book and what it tells us go off the rails into the ultimate silliness by tracking something like this literally, that there's going to be some mark on your forehead, you know. The only way somebody can come up with an explanation like that is, is from an abysmal ignorance of the symbolism and the deep, deep roots this book has in the Older Testament. I don't know why anyone who claims to be Reformed or Protestant has a problem with anchoring everything in Holy Scripture rightly understood and interpreted. Having the mark of God on the forehead means the mind. It means that the mind is captivated by the law word of God. Now here, they're also pictured as singing the new liturgy of Christ. Verse 4 also is not talking about a literal celibacy or a sexual abstinence and using the term virgin there. Some other translations have, have it that they're pure or they're chaste. No, rather, I think this is speaking of purity and virginity in the spiritual and religious sense. Now, I mentioned this last time. We've already had occasion to hear it this time. The occasions where, in the Bible, God frequently compares Old Covenant Israel, the Old Testament church, to an adulterous wife because she turns from him to follow after other gods. And to say it again, we also know that here in the book of Revelation and other places in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So here, the same imagery is used to refer to those first century believers who did not commit spiritual adultery by following after the beast. Now, in their day, that meant that they did not follow after the fallen pagan world system of Rome and Nero. In other words, they didn't bow the knee to the government. When the Roman government says, you will not do this or you will do that. No, they remained pure and faithful to their bridegroom, who was and also is the great king who stands astride the holy mountain of Yahweh. Now, I want you to notice something else very important in verse 4. Those faithful believers are not only called chaste because they have not polluted themselves by following other gods, but it is also specifically said of them that wherever the lamb goes, they follow. They go where the lamb goes. And that means they obey the word of God. They obey the Lord. Now, Infused into these verses is what I'll call, as you'll see in a moment, a doctrinal digression. I don't mean digression in a negative sense. But there are things embedded in these words that have some very important roots in sound biblical doctrine relating to two things in particular. But what this means here, we'll come to that in just a second, that to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, this is the biblical teaching. 
of what it means to be a Christian. And let me tell you, there are many churches today and many Christians in name only, so-called Christians, who are not the real thing. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. You can read Paul's writings in the New Testament. He's constantly addressing this issue of false believers, false teachers, phony believers, uh, people saying one thing and living a different way. Now, in our time especially, I would say, for many people, especially in the evangelical and fundamentalist world, being a Christian is a matter of feeling. It's a matter of emotion. Now, for some others, being a Christian is simply a matter of broad or general belief. They think that all they have to do is say they believe thus and so about Christ, and they're a Christian. Now, I certainly believe in the value and the reality of what in theological terms we call propositional revelation. Christ is God's divine son. That's a propositional statement. It's either true or false. I affirm that it's true. But you see, simply saying something like, well, I must be a Christian because I repeat the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, don't I? Doesn't that qualify me as a Christian? Well, according to the word of God, the answer is mostly no. A Christian is someone who may well affirm every word of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but is someone who follows Jesus, someone who is a disciple. It's someone who lives a life of committed, principled, principled obedience to his law. The Bible knows of no other kind of Christian than that. Now, I want you to notice something else that we're told here about these 144,000 believers. Look again at verse 4. I'm not going to read it, but you, you just look down at it there. Because there's some <coughs> Bible teachers, and, and they're always all in the dispensational camp, of course. They say that these 144,000 represent a future number of Jews who will be converted to Christ in a future great tribulation. I have tried to show you from Holy Scripture that these events have already taken place, and so they are not now in our future. Now, let me qualify that and simply say that that doesn't mean that there won't be times of tribulation and even, quote, great tribulation in the future history of the church. And it's not to say that there may be a time where numbers of people who call themselves Jews come to faith in Christ. Uh, let, me, let me clarify something for you in case you're confused. Any person, pagan, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, whatever they may be, Jew, when they come to faith in Christ and are truly saved and converted, they are Christians. They're not Jews. They're not Buddhists. They're not Hindus. They're not Muslims. They are Christians, period. How do you know that, Pastor? Because, um, well, Holy Scripture teaches it. Paul says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Jesus himself declared that these prophetic events that we're reading about would take place in his generation, in that generation, in the time of the apostles. John, at the beginning and at the end of the book of Revelation, declares that the timing of these events, these things written herein, was near at hand in his time, at that day and time. They were about to happen. And this is yet one more piece of evidence of these things, these events being now past. Those 144,000 are said to represent the first fruits, a direct reference to the Older Testament. In other words, they are those 
here in this case, the application is they are those who came to faith in Christ at the beginning, in the earliest days of Christian ministry. We know, for example, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people who came to faith in Christ that day. And there would be many others who would follow prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, I want you to listen to this passage from Matthew chapter 10. You know, I mentioned last week how Dr. Sproul, in writing that preface to the newer edition of J. Stuart Russell's The Parousia, made the statement that once he came to appreciate some of the writings of J. Stuart Russell and this partial preterist interpretation of the apocalypse, he said, I can never read the New Testament in the same way again without fully appreciating the, significant, the redemptive significance, is the word he used, of the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. Now, Jesus says something here in Matthew 10, 23, that I recall Dr. Spoil, I think I'm right about this, that when he was in seminary at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, which was at the time maybe not as liberal as it would become, but it was liberal enough, where he had professors, at least one or two, who were raising questions about the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, because they said, you could point to something like this. It's clear Jesus thought he would return in the lifetime of the apostles, but he didn't. So it must be wrong. And they point to this, this verse. Jesus, speaking to his apostles and disciples, says to them, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What, what did he mean by that? I, I mean, there's only one way to validly and logically interpret it. He's standing in front of his disciples, or sitting, we don't know, but he's speaking to these people, and he says, when they persecute you in this city, you flee to another, for assuredly I say to you, people sitting here in front of me in the year A.D. 30 or whatever it was, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel. Now he means by that, you will not have gone out evangelizing with the kingdom message through the people of Israel before the Son of Man comes. No, Jesus is telling his followers that they will not have gone through the cities of all Israel of that day before the Son of Man returns in some sense. Notice that Jesus told the apostles that they were to go out through the cities of Israel with the kingdom message. And that meant, and this is where I want to go with this, I mean, I'm adding some context here about the A.D. 70 fulfillment of this, but the main point here is that the first people to have heard the good news of the kingdom message would have been Israelites living in Palestine, in the Galilee region. John in Revelation 14, in speaking of those firstfruits who were redeemed unto God, speaks of those Jews who came to faith in Christ in that day. The days that are the last days before the fall of Israel. And not some future date far off into the 21st or who knows 23rd century. But now again, we are being taught by means of these verses some important basic truths of what it means to be a Christian. For example, as we just read, a real Christian is someone who follows Jesus. But let's also take into account two other things that these verses teach us about being a Christian. Look again at verses 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women who are the virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouths no lie was found. They are blameless. 
So true Christians are redeemed from among men. Notice it doesn't say, and all the men of the world, all human beings redeemed. It says those redeemed from among men. Let me give you some other English translations of that passage. Uh, Revelation 14.4 from the New American Standard has it. These have been purchased from among men. Uh, the New Century Version, a free-handed translation. These were bought, purchased, again, from among the people of the earth. So this is the how or the why a person becomes a true follower of Jesus. In other words, we know it is a fact that a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. But in the order of things, we need to ask, how is it that a person would become a Christian in the first place? Before anyone could or would follow Jesus, they must first and foremost, according to the scriptures, be redeemed by the Lord, bought or purchased by him. And the point is, that is something Christ does for his elect people and not something we do for ourselves. You know, a lot of church-going people have the idea that becoming a Christian is a matter of personal choice. You know, it, it's a matter of making a decision for Christ, or as some of them have it, asking Jesus into your heart. So that for a lot of church-going people, becoming a follower of Jesus is, in the long run, based on my choice, my decision, my will. You know, it's like the old uh, saying, the old, it's an Arminian saying, of course, it's a testimony to the failure of the American Baptist culture that these ideas have been so long promoted in the churches of this country. The devil votes for you. Jesus votes, excuse me, the devil votes against you. Jesus votes for you. You have to cast the deciding vote. My friends, pure, undefiled biblical truth teaches us that the ultimate decision about a man or a woman's salvation does not rest with them, but with God Almighty. The true believer was bought, purchased, redeemed by someone other than themselves. Now, again, to refer back to chapter 13, it tells us there of those who follow Jesus as having had their names written in the book of life. And according to this anti-biblical scheme, those names wouldn't go into the book of life until they, quote, made a decision for Jesus. But no, no, God's word teaches us that they who follow Jesus today have had their names put into that book from before the foundation of the world. Oh, pastor, where in the world would you get such a crazy idea as that? Well, how about Ephesians chapter 1? Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, having predestined us as adoption, by adoption as sons by Christ Jesus, According to the good pleasure of their decision for Christ. No, that's not what he wrote. According to the good pleasure of his will. Revelation 14 reinforces this great biblical truth that if you are a Christian today, it is because God chose you first and in choosing you, your choice for him would then be made a reality. But Revelation 14 also teaches us Another aspect of this important truth, look again at verse 5, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, you may have a translation that says that uh, they had no lie in their mouths and they were without blemish. 
So in that one verse, we learn about the doctrines of sanctification and justification. To be sanctified means to be set apart. It means to be holy and blameless. As our shorter catechism teaches us, it means that we die unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. But now dying unto sin, that doesn't mean that we literally stop being sinners. It doesn't mean that you as a believer will never ever commit a sin now that you follow Jesus. So what does it mean? It means that you do not love sin. It means that you do not practice sin as a lifestyle, as a matter, of course, in your daily life. Now, we may, as believers, fall into some sin. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, talks about this very reality. And it reminds us, based on Scripture, that we will not long stay in that sin. We will become convicted in our minds of the wrongness of it. And that sense of wrongness, that strong inner awareness of the wickedness of the sin we are committing, will not leave us alone. And the reason it will not is because we are now possessed by the Holy Spirit in dwelling our minds and bodies. And whatever your sinful life may have been before you began to follow Jesus, now you can no longer live the same way or think the same way or do the same things. I mean, you may have been, say, for example, to use sort of a low-key example, you may have been a person who stretched the truth on occasion. But now there's no lie and no deceit to be found in your mouth. And then the next part of the verse also tells us something important about our sanctification in Christ, our growing in grace, our daily dying unto sin and living more unto righteousness, that came about by our justification. Justification means something has been set right. Uh, you may have had a time where you had to justify the margins of a paper, a document you were typing out. And that meant that the words had to be lined up and set properly in order in a certain way on the page. And so in the same way, every human being stands condemned before God and out of touch with him. So something must be done to set us right with God. We must be justified, in other words. You may recall in chapters 4 and 5 that John was a witness in those chapters to a court scene in which God the Father and Supreme Judge was handing out a sentence of death, of execution against those who had violated his covenant. The leaders of Old Covenant Israel were found guilty of rejecting Christ and having him murdered. In other words, as their lives and actions were brought under the spotlight of the searching gaze of God's justice, they were found to be at fault before his throne. But notice in Revelation 14 verse 5 that those who have been justified are found to be faultless. Now their being without fault is not due to their leading perfectly sinless lives, that's impossible for any ordinary human being. Rather, it is due solely to what Christ did on their behalf. <clears throat> Near the little town of Watsonville, California, there is a creek, a stream that runs near it with a most unusual name. And that name is Salsipoitus Creek. That name comes from two Spanish words, Salsi and Puedes. And it means get out of it if you can. You see, the creek is lined with quicksand. And the story is that in the earliest days of California's history, when the, the Spanish were exploring and settling the area, 
A Spaniard was riding by on his horse one day, and he saw this Mexican guy who'd fell, fallen into the quicksand. And noticing this, the Spaniard on his horse said to him, Salsi puedes. Get out of it if you can. Not, uh, as you can imagine, a very helpful thing to say at the time. And that creek has borne that name ever since. My friends, that is what struggling with sin is like. Too many people think they can struggle and correct the sinful tendencies of their lives on their own willpower. They think they can do that by their own will or through some self-help program or whatever else it may be. It's no coincidence, may I say, that the megachurches today, almost all of which are Arminian to the core, Pelagian to the core, they're all dominated now by, you know, a pep talk, feel good, positive thinking, uh, do it yourself, you can do it, you can be successful type. What It's not really preaching, I don't know what you'd call it, but it's all about this self-help kind of stuff. Now many people, understandably, rightfully, want to get out of the effects of their sinful nature. But the sad reality is, it is absolutely impossible for us to do that without the help of God's Holy Spirit. And that is what justifying faith is all about. A man or a woman comes to recognize and understand that they are sinners. They come to realize that they have not been living a life that is God-centered and in accord with his law. And they also understand that God will hold them accountable. And all of this reality begins to dawn on them because God, for no other reason than he loved them before the foundation of the world, he sent his Holy Spirit to change them so that they would come to understand these things. And when such a person believes the gospel of the kingdom, they are at that moment justified. They are set right with God. I refer you to our shorter catechism question and answer number 33 about what is justification. And that is why those first century believers could stand before the throne of God without fault. And that is why they sang that mysterious song referred to in verse 3. This new song no one else could learn except them who had been redeemed from the land. Dr. Rastuni said in commenting on this, and I'm quoting him here, The people of God are ever triumphant, and their song, their victory chant, is impossible for the world to learn. He wrote, the world cannot understand the triumph that the true church always experiences. For the world, all things do not work together for good. And therefore, the church's new song, that is a song of thanksgiving, is to them, to the fallen world, incredible and impossible. End quote. My friends, as we close this study today, let us be encouraged because we are, by God's grace, empowered and entitled to sing that same song of victory. Let us pray.